Section 7 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tad Davis. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy, translated by William Masfin Roberts. Book 1, Chapters 49 to 60. Chapter 49. Lucius Tarquinius now began his reign. His conduct procured for him the nickname of Superbus, for he deprived his father-in-law of burial on the plea that Romulus was not buried, and he slew the leading nobles whom he suspected of being partisans of Servius. Conscious that the precedent which he had set of winning a throne by violence might be used against himself, he surrounded himself with a guard, for he had nothing whatever by which to make good his claim to the crown except actual violence. He was reigning without either being elected by the people or confirmed by the Senate. As, moreover, he had no hope of winning the affections of the citizens, he had to maintain his dominion by fear. To make himself more dreaded, he conducted the trials in capital cases without any assessors, and under this pretense he was able to put to death, banish, or fine not only those whom he suspected or disliked, but also those from whom his only object was to extort money. His main object was so to reduce the number of senators by refusing to fill up any vacancies that the dignity of the order itself might be lowered through the smallness of its numbers and less indignation felt at all public business being taken out of its hands. He was the first of the kings to break through the traditional custom of consulting the Senate on all questions, the first to conduct the government on the advice of his palace favorites. War, peace, treaties, alliances were made or broken off by him, just as he thought good, without any authority from either people or senate. He made a special point of securing the Latin nation, that through his power and influence abroad he might be safer amongst his subjects at home. He not only formed ties of hospitality with their chief men, but established family connections. He gave his daughter in marriage to Octavius Mamilius of Tusculum, who was quite the foremost man of the Latin race, descended, if we are to believe traditions, from Ulysses and the goddess Circe. Through that connection, he gained many of his son-in-law's relations and friends. Chapter 50 Tarquin had now gained considerable influence amongst the Latin nobility, and he sent word for them to meet on a fixed date at the Grove of Ferentina, as there were matters of mutual interest about which he wished to consult them. They assembled in considerable numbers at daybreak. Tarquin kept his appointment, it is true, but did not arrive till shortly before sunset. The council spent the whole day in discussing many topics. Turnus Herdonius from Aricia had made a fierce attack on the absent Tarquin. It was no wonder, he said, that the epithet tyrant had been bestowed upon him at Rome, for this was what people commonly called him, though only in whispers, could anything show the tyrant more than his thus trifling with the whole Latin nation. After summoning the chiefs from distant homes, the man who had called the council was not present. 
He was, in fact, trying how far he could go so that if they submitted to the yoke, he might crush them. Who could not see that he was making his way to sovereignty over the Latins? Even supposing that his own countrymen did well to entrust him with supreme power, or rather that it was entrusted and not seized by an act of parricide, the Latins ought not even in that case to place it in the hands of an alien. But if his own people bitterly rue his sway, seeing how they are being butchered, sent into exile, stripped of all their property, what better fate can the Latins hope for? If they followed the speaker's advice, they would go home and take as little notice of the day fixed for the council as he who had fixed it was taking. Just while these and similar sentiments were being uttered by the man who had gained his influence in Aricia by treasonable and criminal practice, Tarquin appeared on the scene. That put a stop to his speech, for all turned from the speaker to salute the king. When silence was restored, Tarquin was advised by those near to explain why he had come so late. He said that, having been chosen as arbitrator between a father and a son, he had been detained by his endeavors to reconcile them, and as that matter had taken up the whole day, he would bring forward the measures he had decided upon the next day. It is said that even this explanation was not received by Turnus without his commenting on it. No case, he argued, could take up less time than one between a father and a son. It could be settled in a few words. If the son did not comply with the father's wishes, he would get into trouble. Chapter 51. With these censures on the Roman king, he left the council. Tarquin took the matter more seriously than he appeared to do, and at once began to plan Turnus's death in order that he might inspire the Latins with the same terror through which he had crushed the spirits of his subjects at home. As he had not the power to get him openly put to death, he compassed his destruction by bringing a false charge against him. Through the agency of some of the Aretians who were opposed to Turnus, he bribed a slave of his to allow a large quantity of swords to be carried secretly into his quarters. This plan was executed in one night. Shortly before daybreak, Tarquin summoned the Latin chiefs into his presence, as though something had happened to give him great alarm. He told them that his delay on the previous day had been brought about by some divine providence, for it had proved the salvation both of them and himself. He was informed that Turnus was planning his murder and that of the leading men in the different cities in order that he might hold sole rule over the Latins. He would have attempted it the previous day in the council, but the attempt was deferred owing to the absence of the convener of the council, the chief object of attack. Hence the abuse leveled against him in his absence because his delay had frustrated the hopes of success. If the reports which reached him were true, he had no doubt that on the assembling of the council at daybreak, Turnus would come armed and with a strong body of conspirators. It was asserted that a vast number of swords had been conveyed to him. Whether this was an idle rumor or not could very soon be ascertained. He asked them to go with him to Turnus. The restless, ambitious character of Turnus, his speech of the previous day, and Tarquin's delay, which easily accounted for the postponement of the murder, all lent color to their suspicions. They went, inclined to accept Tarquin's statement, but quite prepared to regard the whole story as baseless if the swords were not discovered. 
When they arrived, Turnus was roused from sleep and placed under guard, and the slaves, who from affection to their master were preparing to defend him, were seized. Then, when the concealed swords were produced from every corner of his lodgings, the matter appeared only too certain, and Turnus was thrown into chains. Amidst great excitement, a council of the Latins was at once summoned. The sight of the swords placed in the midst aroused such furious resentment that he was condemned, without being heard in his defense, to an unprecedented mode of death. He was thrown into the fountain of Ferentina and drowned by a hurdle weighted with stones being placed over him. Chapter 52. Treaty with the Latins. After the Latins had reassembled in council and had been commended by Tarquin for having inflicted on Turnus a punishment befitting his revolutionary and murderous designs, Tarquin addressed them as follows. It was in his power to exercise a long-established right, since, as all the Latins traced their origin to Alba, they were included in the treaty made by Tullus under which the whole of the Alban state with its colonies passed under the suzerainty of Rome. He thought, however, that it would be more advantageous for all parties if that treaty were renewed, so that the Latins could enjoy a share in the prosperity of the Roman people, instead of always looking out for, or actually suffering, the demolition of their towns and the devastation of their fields, as happened in the reign of Ancus, and afterwards whilst his own father was on the throne. The Latins were persuaded without much difficulty, although by that treaty Rome was the predominant state, for they saw that the heads of the Latin League were giving their adhesion to the king, and Turnus afforded a present example of the danger incurred by anyone who opposed the king's wishes. So the treaty was renewed, and orders were issued for the juniors amongst the Latins to muster under arms in accordance with the treaty on a given day at the grove of Ferentina. Footnote. The juniors were between the ages of 17 to 46, the seniors above that age. In compliance with the order, contingents assembled from all the thirty towns, and with a view to depriving them of their own general, or a separate command, or distinctive standards, he formed one Latin and one Roman century into a maniple, thereby making one unit out of the two, whilst he doubled the strength of the maniples, and placed a centurion over each half. Chapter 53 However tyrannical the king was in his domestic administration, he was by no means a despicable general. In military skill, he would have rivaled any of his predecessors, had not the degeneration of his character in other directions prevented him from attaining distinction here also. He was the first to stir up war with the Volskians, a war which was to last for more than two hundred years after his time and took from them the city of Pontine Suessa. The booty was sold, and he realized out of the proceeds forty talents of silver. He then sketched out the design of a temple to Jupiter, which in its extent should be worthy of the king of gods and men, worthy of the Roman Empire, worthy of the majesty of the city itself. He set apart the above-mentioned sum for its construction." Conquest of Gabii. 
The next war occupied him longer than he expected, failing to capture the neighboring city of Gabii by assault and finding it useless to attempt an investment. After being defeated under its walls, he employed methods against it which were anything but Roman, namely fraud and deceit. He pretended to have given up all thoughts of war and to be devoting himself to laying the foundations of his temple and other undertakings in the city. Meantime, it was arranged that Sextus, the youngest of his three sons, should go as a refugee to Gabii, complaining loudly of his father's insupportable cruelty and declaring that he had shifted his tyranny from others onto his own family and even regarded the presence of his children as a burden and was preparing to devastate his own family as he had devastated the Senate so that not a single descendant, not a single heir to the crown might be left. He had, he said, himself escaped from the murderous violence of his father and felt that no place was safe for him except amongst Lucius Tarquin's enemies. Let them not deceive themselves, the war which apparently was abandoned was hanging over them, and at the first chance he would attack them when they least expected it. If amongst them there was no place for suppliants, he would wander through Latium, he would petition the Volsci, the Iqui, the Herniki, until he came to men who know how to protect children against the cruel and unnatural persecutions of parents. Perhaps he would find people with sufficient spirit to take up arms against a remorseless tyrant backed by a warlike people. As it seemed probable that if they paid no attention to him, he would, in his angry mood, take his departure, the people of Gabii gave him a kind reception. They told him not to be surprised if his father treated his children as he had treated his own subjects and his allies. Failing others, he would end by murdering himself. They showed pleasure at his arrival and expressed their belief that with his assistance, the war would be transferred from the gates of Gabii to the walls of Rome. Chapter 54. He was admitted to the meetings of the National Council. Whilst expressing his agreement with the elders of Gabii on other subjects on which they were better informed, he was continually urging them to war and claimed to speak with special authority because he was acquainted with the strength of each nation and knew that the king's tyranny, which even his own children had found insupportable, was certainly detested by his subjects. So, after gradually working up the leaders of the Gabinians to revolt, he went in person with some of the most eager of the young men on foraging and plundering expeditions. By playing the hypocrite both in speech and action, he gained their mistaken confidence more and more. At last he was chosen as commander in the war. Whilst a mass of the population were unaware of what was intended, skirmishes took place between Rome and Gabii, in which the advantage generally rested with the latter, until the Gabinians from the highest to the lowest firmly believed that Sextus Tarquin had been sent by heaven to be their leader. As for the soldiers, he became so endeared to them by sharing all their toils and dangers, and by a lavish distribution of the plunder, that the elder Tarquin was not more powerful in Rome than his son was in Gabii. When he thought himself strong enough to succeed in anything that he might attempt, he sent one of his friends to his father at Rome to ask what he wished him to do now that the gods had given him soul and absolute power in Gabii. 
To this messenger, no verbal reply was given because, I believe, he mistrusted him. The king went into the palace garden, deep in thought, his son's messenger following him. As he walked along in silence, it is said that he struck off the tallest poppy heads with his stick. Tired of asking and waiting for an answer and feeling his mission to be a failure, the messenger returned to Gabii and reported what he had said and seen, adding that the king, whether through temper or personal aversion or the arrogance which was natural to him, had not uttered a single word. When it had become clear to Sextus what his father meant him to understand by his mysterious silent action, he proceeded to get rid of the foremost men of the state by introducing some of them to the people, whilst others fell victims to their own unpopularity. Many were publicly executed. Some, against whom no plausible charges could be brought, were secretly assassinated. Some were allowed to seek safety in flight or were driven into exile. The property of these, as well as of those who had been put to death, was distributed in grants and bribes. The gratification felt by each who received a share blunted the sense of the public mischief that was being wrought, until deprived of all counsel and help, the state of Gabii was surrendered to the Roman king without a single battle. Chapter 55. Public Works in Rome After the acquisition of Gabii, Tarquin made peace with the Iqui and renewed the treaty with the Etruscans. Then he turned his attention to the business of the city. The first thing was the Temple of Jupiter on the Tarpeian Mount, which he was anxious to leave behind as a memorial of his reign and name. Both the Tarquins were concerned in it. The father had vowed it. The son completed it. That the whole of the area which the Temple of Jupiter was to occupy might be wholly devoted to that deity, he decided to deconsecrate the fanes and chapels, some of which had been originally vowed by King Tatius at the crisis of his battle with Romulus, and subsequently consecrated and inaugurated. Tradition records that at the commencement of this work, the gods sent a divine intimation of the future vastness of the empire, for whilst the omens were favorable for the deconsecration of all the other shrines, they were unfavorable for that of the fane of Terminus. This was interpreted to mean that as the abode of Terminus was not moved, and he alone of all the deities was not called forth from his consecrated borders, so all would be firm and immovable in the future empire." This augury of lasting dominion was followed by a prodigy which portended the greatness of the empire. It is said that whilst they were digging the foundations of the temple, a human head came to light with the face perfect. This appearance unmistakably pretended that the spot would be the stronghold of empire and the head of all the world. This was the interpretation given by the soothsayers in the city, as well as by those who had been called into council from Etruria. The king's designs were now much more extensive, so much so that his share of the spoils of Pometia, which had been set apart to complete the work, now hardly met the cost of the foundations. This makes me inclined to trust Fabius, who, moreover, is the older authority, when he says that the amount was only 40 talents rather than piso, who states that 40,000 pounds of silver were set apart for that object. 
for not only is such a sum more than could be expected from the spoils of any single city at that time, but it would more than suffice for the foundations of the most magnificent building of the present day. Chapter 56 Determined to finish his temple, he sent for workmen from all parts of Etruria, and not only used the public treasury to defray the cost, but also compelled the plebeians to take their share of the work. This was in addition to their military service, and was anything but a light burden. Still, they felt it less of a hardship to build the temples of the gods with their own hands than they did afterwards when they were transferred to other tasks less imposing, but involving greater toil. The construction of the Fori in the circus and that of the Cloaca Maxima, a subterranean tunnel to receive all the sewage of the city. The magnificence of these two works could hardly be equaled by anything in the present day. When the plebeians were no longer required for these works, he considered that such a multitude of unemployed would prove a burden to the state, and as he wished the frontiers of the empire to be more widely colonized, he sent colonists to Signia and Circii to serve as a protection to the city by land and sea. The Mission to Delphi while he was carrying out these undertakings, a frightful portent appeared. A snake gliding out of a wooden column created confusion and panic in the palace. The king himself was not so much terrified as filled with anxious forebodings. The Etruscan soothsayers were only employed to interpret prodigies which affected the state, but this one concerned him and his house personally, so he decided to send to the world-famed oracle of Delphi. Fearing to entrust the oracular response to anyone else, he sent two of his sons to Greece, through lands at that time unknown and overseas still less known. Titus and Aarons started on their journey. They had as a traveling companion Lucius Junius Brutus, the son of the king's sister Tarquinia, a young man of a very different character from that which he had assumed. When he heard of the massacre of the chiefs of the state, amongst them his own brother, by his uncle's orders, he determined that his intelligence should give the king no cause for alarm, nor his fortune any provocation to his avarice, and that as the laws afforded no protection, he would seek safety in obscurity and neglect. Accordingly, he carefully kept up the appearance and conduct of an idiot, leaving the king to do what he liked with his person and property, and did not even protest against his nickname of Brutus, for under the protection of that nickname the soul which was one day to liberate Rome was awaiting its destined hour. The story runs that when brought to Delphi by the Tarquins, more as a butt for their sport than as a companion, he had with him a golden staff enclosed in a hollow one of Cornell wood, which he offered to Apollo as a mystical emblem of his own character. After executing their father's commission, the young men were desirous of ascertaining to which of them the kingdom of Rome would come. A voice came from the lowest depths of the cavern, "'Whichever of you, young men, shall be the first to kiss his mother, he shall hold supreme sway in Rome.'" Sextus had remained behind in Rome, and to keep him in ignorance of this oracle, and so deprive him of any chance of coming to the throne— the two Tarquins insisted upon absolute silence being kept on the subject. 
they drew lots to decide which of them should be the first to kiss his mother on their return to Rome. Brutus, thinking that the oracular utterance had another meaning, pretended to stumble, and as he fell, kissed the ground, for the earth is, of course, the common mother of us all. Then they returned to Rome, where preparations were being energetically pushed forward for a war with the Rutulians. Chapter 57. The Story of Lucretia This people, who were at that time in possession of Ardea, were, considering the nature of their country and the age in which they lived, exceptionally wealthy. This circumstance really originated the war, for the Roman king was anxious to repair his own fortune, which had been exhausted by the magnificent scale of his public works, and also to conciliate his subjects by a distribution of the spoils of war. His tyranny had already produced disaffection, but what moved their special resentment was the way they had been so long kept by the king at manual and even servile labor. An attempt was made to take Ardea by assault. When that failed, recourse was had to a regular investment to starve the enemy out. When troops are stationary, as is the case in a protracted, more than in an active campaign, furloughs are easily granted, more so to the men of rank, however, than to the common soldiers. The royal princes sometimes spent their leisure hours in feasting and entertainments and at a wine party given by Sextus Tarquinius, at which Colatinus, the son of Egerius, was present, the conversation happened to turn upon their wives, and each began to speak of his own in terms of extraordinarily high praise. As the dispute became warm, Colatinus said that there was no need of words. It could in a few hours be ascertained how far his Lucretia was superior to all the rest. Why do we not, he exclaimed, if we have any youthful vigor about us, mount our horses and pay our wives a visit and find out their characters on the spot? What we see of the behavior of each on the unexpected arrival of her husband, let that be the surest test. They were heated with wine and all shouted, Good, come on! Setting spur to their horses, they galloped off to Rome, where they arrived as darkness was beginning to close in. Thence they proceeded to Colatea, where they found Lucretia very differently employed from the king's daughters-in-law, whom they had seen passing their time in feasting and luxury with their acquaintances. She was sitting at her woolwork in the hall, late at night, with her maids busy round her. The palm in this competition of wifely virtue was awarded to Lucretia. She welcomed the arrival of her husband and the Tarquins, whilst her victorious spouse courteously invited the royal princes to remain as his guests. Sextus Tarquin, inflamed by the beauty and exemplary purity of Lucretia, formed the vile project of effecting her dishonor. After their youthful frolic, they returned, for the time, to camp. Chapter 58 A few days afterwards, Sextus Tarquin went, unknown to Colatinus, with one companion to Colatia. He was hospitably received by the household, who suspected nothing, and after supper was conducted to the bedroom set apart for guests. When all around seemed safe and everybody fast asleep, he went in the frenzy of his passion with a naked sword to the sleeping Lucretia, and placing his left hand on her breast, said, 
Silence, Lucretia. I am Sextus Tarquin, and I have a sword in my hand. If you utter a word, you shall die. When the woman, terrified out of her sleep, saw that no help was near, and instant death threatening her, Tarquin began to confess his passion, pleaded, used threats as well as entreaties, and employed every argument likely to influence a female heart. When he saw that she was inflexible and not moved even by the fear of death, he threatened to disgrace her, declaring that he would lay the naked corpse of the slave by her dead body so that it might be said that she had been slain in foul adultery. By this awful threat, his lust triumphed over her inflexible chastity, and Tarquin went off exulting in having successfully attacked her honor. Lucretia, overwhelmed with grief at such a frightful outrage, sent a messenger to her father at Rome and to her husband at Ardea, asking them to come to her, each accompanied by one faithful friend. It was necessary to act, and to act promptly. A horrible thing had happened. Spurius Lucretius came with Publius Valerius, the son of Olesus, Colatinus with Lucius Junius Brutus, with whom he happened to be returning to Rome when he was met by his wife's messenger. They found Lucretia sitting in her room prostrate with grief. As they entered, she burst into tears, and to her husband's inquiry whether all was well replied, No, what can be well with a woman when her honor is lost? The marks of a stranger, Colatinus, are in your bed, but it is only the body that has been violated, the soul is pure, Death shall bear witness to that, but pledge me your solemn word that the adulterer shall not go unpunished. It is Sextus Tarquin, who, coming as an enemy instead of a guest, forced from me last night by brutal violence a pleasure fatal to me, and if you are men, fatal to him. They all successively pledged their word, and tried to console the distracted woman by turning the guilt from the victim of the outrage to the perpetrator, and urging that it is the mind that sins, not the body, and where there has been no consent there is no guilt. It is for you, she said, to see that he gets his deserts. Although I acquit myself of the sin, I do not free myself from the penalty. No unchaste woman shall henceforth live and plead Lucretia's example. She had a knife concealed in her dress, which she plunged into her heart and fell dying on the floor. Her father and husband raised the death cry. Footnote. As soon as life was extinct, those round the deathbed raised a loud cry of woe and called out the name of the deceased. For a similar custom among the Hebrews, compare Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. Chapter 59. The Expulsion of the Tarquins. Whilst they were absorbed in grief, Brutus drew the knife from Lucretia's wound and, holding it dripping with blood in front of him, said, by this blood, most pure, before the outrage wrought by the king's son, I swear, and you, O gods, I call to witness that I will drive hence Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, together with his cursed wife and his whole brood, with fire and sword and every means in my power, and I will not suffer them or anyone else to reign in Rome." 
Then he handed the knife to Colatinus, and then to Lucretius and Valerius, who were all astounded at the marvel of the thing, wondering whence Brutus had acquired this new character. They swore as they were directed. All their grief changed to wrath, and they followed the lead of Brutus, who summoned them to abolish the monarchy forthwith. They carried the body of Lucretia from her home down to the Forum, where, owing to the unheard-of atrocity of the crime, they at once collected a crowd. Each had his own complaint to make of the wickedness and violence of the royal house. Whilst all were moved by the father's deep distress, Brutus bade them stop their tears and idle laments, and urged them to act as men and Romans, and take up arms against their insolent foes. All the high-spirited amongst the younger men came forward as armed volunteers. The rest followed their example. A portion of this body was left to hold Colatea, and guards were stationed at the gates to prevent any news of the movement from reaching the king. The rest marched in arms to Rome with Brutus in command. On their arrival, the sight of so many men in arms spread panic and confusion wherever they marched, but when again the people saw that the foremost men of the state were leading the way, they realized that whatever the movement was, it was a serious one. The terrible occurrence created no less excitement in Rome than it had done in Colatea. There was a rush from all quarters of the city to the Forum. When they had gathered there, the herald summoned them to attend the tribune of the Calares. This was the office which Brutus happened at the time to be holding. He made a speech quite out of keeping with the character and temper he had up to that day assumed. He dwelt upon the brutality and licentiousness of Sextus Tarquin, the infamous outrage on Lucretia and her pitiful death, the bereavement sustained by her father Trichopatinus, to whom the cause of his daughter's death was more shameful and distressing than the actual death itself. Then he dwelt on the tyranny of the king, the toils and sufferings of the plebeians kept underground clearing out ditches and sewers, Roman men, conquerors of all the surrounding nations, turned from warriors into artisans and stonemasons. He reminded them of the shameful murder of Servius Tullius and his daughter driving in her accursed chariot over her father's body and solemnly invoked the gods as the avengers of murdered parents. By enumerating these, and I believe other still more atrocious incidents which his keen sense of the present injustice suggested, but which it is not easy to give in detail, he goaded on the incensed multitude to strip the king of his sovereignty and pronounce a sentence of banishment against Tarquin with his wife and children. With a picked body of the juniors who volunteered to follow him, he went off to the camp at Ardea to incite the army against the king, leaving the command in the city to Lucretius, who had previously been made prefect of the city by the king. During the commotion, Tullia fled from the palace amidst the execrations of all whom she met, men and women alike invoking against her, her father's avenging spirit. Chapter 60 when the news of these proceedings reached the camp, the king, alarmed at the turn affairs were taking, hurried to Rome to quell the outbreak. Brutus, who was on the same road, had become aware of his approach, and to avoid meeting him, took another route, so that he reached Ardea and Tarquin, Rome, almost at the same time, though by different ways. 
Tarquin found the gates shut and a decree of banishment passed against him. The liberator of the city received a joyous welcome in the camp and the king's sons were expelled from it. Two of them followed their father into exile amongst the Etruscans in Kyrie. Sextus Tarquin proceeded to Gabii, which he looked upon as his kingdom, but was killed in revenge for the old feuds he had kindled by his rapine and murders. Lucius Tarquinius Superbus reigned 25 years. The whole duration of the regal government from the foundation of the city to its liberation was 244 years. Two consuls were then elected in the Assembly of Centuries by the prefect of the city in accordance with the regulations of Servius Tullius. They were Lucius Junius Brutus and Lucius Tarquinius Colatinus. End of section 7.